This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The series Ted Lasso just started its third and final season on Apple TV+. The show's about an American football coach who moves to England to manage a struggling English Premier League football team, even though he has no experience coaching soccer. The series became a huge hit with critics and audiences when it premiered during the pandemic and went on to win two Emmys for Best Comedy Series for its first two seasons. Our guest, Brett Goldstein, is a writer for the series and won two consecutive Emmys for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series for his role on Ted Lasso. He spoke with Fresh Airs and Maria Boldinato. The show may be called Ted Lasso, but for a lot of viewers, it's all about Roy Kent. When we meet him at the beginning of the series, he's a gruff, foul-mouthed British footballer past the heights of his career. As the show goes on, he remains gruff and foul-mouthed, but he tearfully retires, coaches his niece's girls' football team, becomes a sports pundit on TV, and then settles into the role of assistant coach for his old team, AFC Richmond. Here he is with the team of nine-year-old girls after a loss. You played a hell of a game, but you lost. I want you to remember this feeling. Burn this moment into your brains. Good. Is it time for trophies, Uncle Roy? Yeah, yeah. Emily's mum bought everyone consolation trophies. Must be nice to just burn cash. Best dressed. It's stupid, you're all wearing the same thing. You? Right, you know what? Just get amongst it. Enjoy your trophies for winning nothing. Coach Kent. Look, when I was young, you got shouted at for losing. It's the same. But then tough love never bothered me. You know, as long as I knew the coach gave it. Oi! It has been an honour coaching all of you. I do hope you'll come back and play next year. But only if you mean it! (laughs) Our guest Brett Goldstein plays Roy Kent. He won the Emmy twice for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. He's also a writer for the show. Plus, he co-created the TV series Shrinking, which stars Jason Segel, Harrison Ford, and Jessica Williams. That show just aired its season one finale and was renewed for a second season. Goldstein also entered the Marvel Universe, playing Hercules, who looks to be a new Marvel villain. He also hosts the podcast Films to be Buried With, where he finds out about the lives of comedians, actors, and filmmakers by asking them about the films that mean most to them. Ted Lasso just started its third and final season. Brett Goldstein, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Emery. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start by asking you to tell a story that you've told a lot, but it's a great story. How did you get the role of Roy Kent? Okay, the the story goes like this, and it is true. The story is uh, I was a writer on Ted Lasso. I'd done a pilot with Bill Lawrence, one of the co-creators, a few years before, and we'd stayed in touch, and he knew I was a writer, and he called me and said, do you want to come write on this TV show about football? We need a British guy. And I said, sounds interesting. And I met with Jason Sudeikis on 
FaceTime and then we fell in love and then I was like, yes, I really, really want to do this. And I went over and was writing Ted Lasso uh, with the team. And as we were writing it, I started to think, oh, I, uh, I think I'm Roy Kent. But I also knew no one in the room was thinking of me uh, for obvious reasons. And I didn't want to make anyone uncomfortable and I knew it was going to be awful if I just suddenly said in the writer's room what about me for Roy Kent I knew everyone would just be like uh, everyone would just look at their hands and be like yeah good idea Um, let's think about it Uh, so I waited until we'd finished in the writer's room and I made a self-tape of five scenes and uh, and I emailed it as I flew back to London I sent an email and I said look I know this is really awkward, so if this is terrible and embarrassing, you can pretend you never got this email and I will never ask about it. But I think I could be Roy. And so I've made you this video, and if you think it's good, then great. And I sent the email, flew back to London, and as I landed, I got an email saying, this is brilliant. And I thought, oh, they can't be bothered to keep looking and uh and I got the part what was it that you related to or understood about Roy that made you think I have to play this guy well it was so much of it I mean there was parts of it that were very personal to me and there were parts that I understood from having sort of known these people is that uh, one thing was I grew up my dad is like a football hooligan and uh, very very obsessed with football and I always grew up around footballers and around football and um, you know we had friends of the family who were professional footballers and I saw this culture and and as I was a kid they were getting older and coming to the end of their careers and I I sort of saw this thing of it's very tragic it's very uh, difficult this transition from there they're not I can't think of many careers that are like this I'm sure there are but football is very specific where you you start very, very young. You, you live this quite insane life uh, that's completely this thing that makes you special, that makes you this kind of amazing thing. And then in your 30s, it starts to come to an end. And not only is that difficult, but you don't really have any other life skills. You've been living in this sort of weird bubble. And for it to... You don't want it to end. You had no plan but your body doesn't agree, you know what I mean? But then again, I think that that's also a universal feeling, a feeling of ageing, and you don't want to age, but your body, your knees don't work as well as they used to, and there's something sort of tragic about that. And then the other stuff in Roy is, you know, he's he's a guy who's been raised in this kind of, if you want to call it toxic masculine environment where he's been culturally taught to be tough and to be a wall and you know and it's extreme with him partly because of the position he played he was a captain and he's a sort of box-to-box midfielder his job is to not let people pass him he has to be a wall he has to scare people and um, the fact that he has all this emotion in him but he has repressed it for all these years uh, and he finds it very very difficult to be vulnerable and I always had this thing that the reason he talks like that is because he's he's pushed all his... It's literally like a cork is in his throat, like a cork is holding all, all his emotions in. Because if he let it out, he'd be such a wreck, you know? 
I, well, I was going to ask about that because, you know, as we can hear, Roy's voice is different from yours. You know, the character's voice was lower, more gravelly, gruffer. Was that the voice there from the beginning? Like, do And do you have to do anything to go into Roy voice? I should also mention that, like, Roy also kind of walks a certain way, holding himself together. Yes, yes. Well, well, all of that, all of that is, do you know what? It's quite, it's funny because when you do, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for this, by the way, but when you do all the press for the show, you end up talking about it in a way that you didn't talk about it when you were making it, because when you're making it, as in, look, when we write it, we analyse every single angle, every, you know, it's like a kind of, mad dissection of every person's feeling every mo- every movement everything but when it came to acting it it's all instinctual I didn't I, I, it's only in hindsight when I talk about it I go oh I think that's why this was this you know except for the stance which was definitely uh he he, he walks with his shoulders back really far back and really tall uh, a because he's ready to headbutt anyone at any <laughs> any moment, but that it's also how people I think used to be raised. It's like head up, shoulders back, like as in that's um, that shows you're a man, and that shows you're intimidating, and that's confidence. You know what I mean? And he's been, I think he's literally been told that since a child. Head up, shoulders back. You know what I mean? And that's so it's so drilled into him. That's his stance. And the, and with the voice, the voice was like instinctual. But when I analyze it, I go, yes, yeah, because he's holding everything in, and and because it's also more intimidating that way. And it, I, I, there's a a footballer that I spoke to in kind of researching this before I played Roy, and he told me this story that I always think about because he I know this guy and he's lovely. He's a lovely guy, but. When he played football, he was a captain, and he told me like his job was, his job was to be good at football, but it was also to scare people. He was like, you want people, when they're coming towards you with the ball, that they're scared, that they're thinking, uh oh, I'm about to face him. And he told me this story of uh, when he was like an aging footballer when he was in his last few years, he. He uh, was about to play a game. The teams are on the on the pitch, sort of warming up before the game. And there's this young kid, like an 18-year-old, making his debut on the other team. And the kid sort of comes over to him really nervous and he says, Hey man, sorry to interrupt, I just want to say hello. I have your poster on my wall. You're a legend. You've been my favourite footballer since I was a kid. And my guy turns to the kid and he goes, Who the f- are you I don't know you because he's about to play him in a game and the kid was so shocked and horrified like oh god oh god and he said and yeah we won the match that day and I was like it's such an interesting story like you know because I know the guy in real life he'd have been so flattered like oh wow that's very nice thank you but not today not when I'm playing you son feels like Roy would do that absolutely he would yeah you know, in some ways, this show is a little bit of a Trojan horse, like on the surface. You know, it's a show about sports, but it also takes on feelings of loss, you know, masculinity, relationships between men, fathers and sons. But that's kind of what sports is. Like our joke in our family is like sports are really just soap operas or stories for men. Completely. I, I, there's a thing we've talked about 
uh, of I truly I, I think sport is there so men can say I love you without saying I love you and that you know look on on the one hand there's me and my dad talk almost exclusively about football but it is our way of communicating you know I, I'll call him what's what's happening with uh, Tottenham he tells me all this stuff sometimes he'll call me uh, I didn't tell you about this transfer this whatever this minute detail but I think it is us saying I love you I love you <laughs> how are you I love you you know what I mean and there's the thing of we talked about this in the writers room of um, sport being that and look this is a gross generalisation so please forgive the generalisation of it but it is something that certainly I know a lot of people relate to which is uh, men traditionally aren't great about looking each other in the eye and talking about their feelings. And what sport does, in the same way that a car ride does, is that you're both facing forward. You don't have to look at each other. You're looking at drama happening in front of you and you can talk about things because you don't have to look at each other and if anything gets emotional, it can kind of be blamed on what's happening on the pitch. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's something, it's like, if we don't look at each other and we can face this way, then we can talk. And I'm always fascinated by, particularly when I see really, really repressed, <laughs> difficult men, but I see them at a game where they're singing and they're screaming and they're shouting and they're crying and... It's like this whole catharsis for them, these, these feelings that they can't process in the week. Like sometimes I think football is like a, <laughs> a therapeutic good for the world, for people who can't, who can't ever bring themselves to go to therapy. You know what I mean? I think that's true. I like um, coupling it with the car ride too. It's like a way for things that don't come out regularly as a way for them to come out. Difficult things. I'd much rather, we used to meet, uh, my friends at, at uni uh, bought a van and they'd call it therapy van and they'd like get, get their friends and they'd sit in the front and the friends would sit in the back and they'd go, come on, tell us what's going on in your life and just drive around because <laughs> as long as no one has to look at each other, it's fine. You said that you used to be miserable and had a dark brain and that you've worked hard to change that. You know, I, take a number. No, just kidding. Well, but, <laughs> but what do you think a younger you would think about the fact that you're credited for making this like hopeful show? Because for a lot of people, Ted Lasso was like this antidote to dark, you know, the, the pandemic, this dark time. It was like this lovely, hopeful thing. I mean, look, I... I, I... I really have been on a, a journey. It's it is amazing. You you asking me that question is making me go, bloody hell! Like I, I am proof that people can change. I suppose, and that you can change your worldview and your. I had a very very dark brain. I think I was very miserable and used to write. When I f I found like sort of old, I was always writing it, and I found kind of old stories when I was moving house. Like I found a box of like old stuff from university and early 20s like short stories and things I'd written and they're so dark like horrible <laughs> horrible like what I, like what kind of darkness of, uh, they never had a happy ending they were always a pretty bleak 
view of humanity and, you know, they would... I don't want to go into two specifics, but just like, just horrible, just reading them like, Jesus, man, you are not, you are not a happy boy. Uh, but but it, I think a number of things changed that, you know, one is sort of, uh, one is therapy for sure. Therapy was hugely helpful. The other was sort of life experience and, and realising, you know, I've, I, I, I have... I have an incredible life. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And if you're not appreciating that, then you're insane. You know, it's like, there's that. Um, but also, it's, it's mostly, I suppose, it's mostly therapy. And then realising, I've talked about this on my podcast, and it's not a joke, because I really think this was like a a profound moment in as a as a writer, as a creative, which is, I saw a film... Maybe I won't name it again, uh, but there's a film that was critically acclaimed, five stars everywhere, you know, this year's masterpiece. And I went to see it, and it is so profoundly bleak and depressing, and I hate this film. And I went to see it on a Saturday night with my friend, and we sat there, and it was like an hour into this, and it's based on a true story, but... Horrible, 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 horrible. And then about an hour in, something even more horrible happens. And the, and it's just shot really slowly. Like you're just sort of watching this act of sexual violence happen. And it happens for like three minutes. The camera just held on it. And I turned to my friend as a joke and I went, that's entertainment. <laughs> and I thought, what are we doing? Like, why have we paid to see this thing? And it And it really sort of stuck with me as like, I think this film is bad. I think this is bad art because there's no glimmer of light in it. There's no humour in it. There's no... This isn't how life is. And I know this is a true story. And these horrible th- these horrible events did happen, yes. But if you've, if you've experienced horrible events, if you've read books written by survivors of horrible events, there are always, always jokes in them. There's a moment where they laughed. There's a moment where they held each other. There's a moment of connection, of love, of light in everything. And if you make something that doesn't have any of that, I think it's bad art. I think you've not watched life. You know what I mean? I can't... I, there's a... At the other end of the scale... <laughs> There's a film I'm obsessed with called Dear Sama, which is a, a documentary made by people who are li- literally living in the middle of a war zone. They're doctors uh, staying in, in a hospital that is relentlessly being bombed. And it is, you know, they're in the most extreme kind of, you can't think of anything worse. Like there are dead bodies, there are dead children. Like it's hardcore, hardcore, tough, horrendous. And yet within this film that is set over a year, I think, they get secretly married at one point. There is love, there's dancing, there's laughter. There's, it's one of the most romantic films I've ever seen. Like, it's so beautiful and profound and, and has far more laughs than you might think from the description. And that's real life. That is their existence. And I go, that's, that's the stuff that matters. Like, that's important. I don't want to see something that where the message seems to be, what's the point of anything? Like, I'm like, we're all there anyway. I don't need a reminder of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. right. 
We're listening to the interview Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Boldenado recorded with Brett Goldstein, a co-star of and writer for the series Ted Lasso. He also co-created the series Shrinking. We'll hear more of their interview after a break, and Justin Chang will review a new film he describes as a harrowing story about two African migrant children living in a bustling Belgian city. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. What's happening with NPR Podcasts? Money. Power. Tacos. White collar crime. Green parties. Black reparations. More of the perspectives that make your world a more vibrant place. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Molly C.B. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air. If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show. You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show. Imagine an email you enjoy getting. To subscribe, go to whyy.org slash Fresh air. Let's get back to our interview with Emmy Award-winning actor, comic, and writer Brett Goldstein. He plays Roy Kent in the Apple TV Plus series Ted Lasso. He also writes for the show. And he co-created another Apple TV Plus series, Shrinking, which stars Jason Segel and Harrison Ford. All of season one of Shrinking is now streaming. Ted Lasso just started its third and final season. I want to talk to you about Shrinking, the other show you co-created with Bill Lawrence, who also co-created Ted Lasso. Jason Siegel is also a co-creator. The first season of that show just ended, and congratulations, it's been renewed for a second season. Um, Thanks. It's about Jimmy, played by Jason Siegel, who's lost his way. He's dealing with the tragic death of his wife. And as the show goes on, he's trying to reconnect with his teenage daughter. Um, I should say that this is another comedy, even though the main characters are dealing with grief. Um, Jimmy's a therapist, and he decides he wants to change his approach to therapy. He starts to blur the boundaries between therapist and patient. Um, Harrison Ford plays Jimmy's boss, who's also a therapist. He's also Jimmy's mentor. That character, Paul, is grumpy. He's good at his job. And he's also dealing with a Parkinson's diagnosis, which is progressing. I want to play a scene from the first episode of the show. Jimmy, Jason Siegel's character, is frustrated with one of his patients. He wants to try that new approach and um, goes into the break room in their offices to talk to his boss, Paul, who's played by Harrison Ford, and another therapist, Gabby, who's played by Jessica Williams. Hey, kid. How you doing? I'm normal, you know. It's a normal day, normal day, doing it, doing it normal style. Hey, you know what I was thinking, Paul? Is it about how you're just doing it normal style? What? What are you thinking? You guys ever get so mad at your patients that all of a sudden you just want to shake them? Well, we don't shake them. No, I know, I know. I, I, I'm rooting for them. I am. I'm like, come on, you 
person. You can change. And then they just never do. Compassion fatigue. We all hit those walls. Yeah. You ask questions, you listen, you stay non-judgmental, and you don't make that face. Sorry. It's just, look, we know what they should do. You know why? Because it's pretty simple. I get sad when I do this thing. Maybe don't do that thing. We know the answer. Don't you ever want to just, just make them do it? Great idea. We just rob them of their autonomy, any chance they have to help themselves, right? And we become what? Psychological vigilantes? <laughs> oh my God. I'm like sensing the sarcasm, but that sounds kind of badass. What did you do? I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Ooh, you're going to get it. <laughs> Don't say ooh. Look, I'm stuck. I'm, that's it. I'm just trying to shake things up. Thought I would talk about it with you guys. Ran out of time, so I have to go because I have a patient. You don't have a watch on. And I hope everybody has a great day because I'm going to go handle this one by the book. That's a scene from the first episode of Shrinking. You can find all the episodes, by the way, of season one on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, how did you get Harrison Ford to be on the show? I should say that he's on another TV show now, but he hasn't really done TV before or comedy, for that matter, in a while, if at all. Uh, we we thought we're never getting Harrison Ford. Of course we're not getting Harrison Ford. We sent the script uh, to Harrison Ford just so we could get on with our lives. Uh, his agent read it and was like, oh, this is good. Uh, Harrison's in London. Uh, one of you should meet with him. Uh, I was in London filming Ted Lasso and everyone else was in America. And so Bill says, uh, well, Brett can meet with Harrison if he wants. Um, and I'm in my house. I have a call and I don't recognise the number, so I'm like, no, thanks. And I, <laughs> I reject it. And then I have a voicemail, which I've kept to this day. And it says, hey, it's Harrison Ford. And I was like, what the heck? And uh, he says, call me back. And I call Harrison. I immediately call him because I know I'm going to freak out if I think about it for any length of time. So I call him. And he says, hey, hey. And I go, hi, it's uh, Brett here. Hello, Harrison. And I say, how's it going? He goes, fine, I'm just at work. And he was working on a little independent film called Indiana Jones 5. And, uh, and he says, do you want to meet for dinner on Saturday night? And I say, oh, I, I can't. I've got a gig because I do stand-up. I had a stand-up gig booked. And he goes, oh. And he seems sort of slightly sort of annoyed. And then we hang up and I call back Bill and I go, uh, well, I spoke to Harrison, but he wanted to have dinner on Saturday. And I said, I can't because I've got a gig. And Bill was like, cancel the gig, it's Harrison Ford, no one cancels on him. And so I texted him and I was like, hey, sorry about Saturday, uh, I don't know if, you're, if you have plans on Friday, but maybe I could meet you after work. Uh, and he says, yeah, I can meet you like half an hour between 6.30 and 7. And so I think, oh, I've, you know, I've been downgraded. So I go, I get a taxi to his place, and I'm really, really nervous, and... He answers the door, and he's literally Indiana Jones. And he stood there as Indi he's Indiana Jones. And I'm like, hello. And we go inside, and he says, best script I've ever read. And I go, Sh shrinking, because <laughs> I can't believe I've seen this. I'm like, this can't be the best script you've ever read. And he goes, best dialogue I've ever read. 
And I look on the table and he's got a load of scripts on the table for different things. And I'm like, oh no, this is embarrassing. He thinks I'm someone else. And I'm sort of looking through the scripts he has and I find shrinking and I go, shrinking? Point at it. (laughs) Are you sure? And he goes, best dialogue I've ever read. And I go, oh, right. Um, Do you want to do it then? And he goes, yeah. And I go, hmm, okay. And he goes, is that business done? And I go, looks like it. And he goes, let's eat. (laughs) And then we sat. I stayed with him all night till about midnight, one in the morning. And we talked about the part, talked about life, everything. It was unbelievable. And I remember thinking, yeah, I assume this is what Hollywood was like. (laughs) This is how it works. (laughs) Well, I want to bring it back to Ted Lasso for a moment, because Ted starts going to therapy in season two to deal with his panic attacks and grief, you know, I would say. Um, And he has a breakthrough with his therapist when he kind of finds out more about her. And now even in season three, he wants to reserve some of his time in therapy sessions to ask his therapist personal questions. And she begrudgingly allows it. And that reminded me of Jimmy and Shrinking, who, you know, wants to change up or transform that therapist-patient relationship, um, like sort of, uh, you know, blur the boundaries. First, why do you like to write about therapy so much? And what is it about the patient-therapist relationship that you find interesting? It's a good question. I think that it's inherently so kind of dramatic and interesting. It's quite a unique, such a unique relationship between a therapist and a patient. Uh, The fact that they can know more about you than anyone, maybe, Mm. Mm. if you're being honest with them. (laughs) And, and yet, you know, it's professional and you're paying them to, to, to listen There's, and that there are boundaries, but that this relationship can go on for years and years. Some people have the same therapist for 40 years or something and uh, it's such a strange... There's no other relationship like it, I don't think. There's no equivalent. Um, and I don't know, it just... It, and it's also... Uh, I just think it's... It's dramatically interesting, and the fact that, you know, look, in, in shrinking the the Jimmy part of it, I guess on some level is is wish fulfillment. I've I've heard from therapists that it's a wish fulfillment show for them that they're like, God, I'd love to be able to say these things to my uh, clients or do these things, but obviously you can't. And similarly, I think people often say about their therapist, I wish you'd just tell me what to do. <laughs> or, what is your life? I don't know anything about you, and I'm telling you everything. This is so unfair. Um, I think, yeah, I just think all those, all those boundaries and playing with them in a dramatic context is fun and juicy. But in real life, I just, you know, I've, I... Uh, it's it's it, I think it's quite interesting. The, the thing that happens with Dr. Sharon and Ted is, yeah, is that she realizes the key to his treatment is I have to let him in a bit in a way that she wouldn't do with anyone else, and that's quite because she's good at her job, you know. Uh, I don't know. I I find all that stuff fascinating. Like, I think I know a fair bit about my therapist, but I also probably don't know anything and maybe she's lying to me who knows (laughs) maybe she tells me what she thinks I need to hear
Uh, let's take a short break here and we'll talk some more. My guest is Emmy Award winner Brett Goldstein. He stars as Roy Kent in the Apple TV Plus series Ted Lasso. He also writes for the show. He co-created another Apple TV Plus series, Shrinking, starring Jason Segel and Harrison Ford. He hosts the podcast Films to be Buried With. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. I want to play another scene from Shrinking. This is a scene with Harrison Ford and the actress who plays Jimmy's daughter, the teenage girl who has lost her mom. And she is struggling and not getting along with her dad, who hasn't really been there for her. Paul, Harrison Ford's character, meets with her to kind of fill in. Um, He meets with her periodically. And here in this scene, they're in a park talking about one of the girl's friends. The daughter is played by Lukita Maxwell. Summer's so dumb. She wants me to go to this thing called Drinks Under the Bridge. What is that? It's where they go and have drinks under a bridge. Oh, well, then it's a very good name for it. They just all act so immature. Well, they are immature. They're teenagers. They haven't been through what you've been through. Well, then they're lucky. For now, nobody gets through this life unscathed. Not you, not me, Mr. Shaky Hands. But then you're left with a choice. Are you gonna let your grief drown you? Or are you gonna face it and come through the other side? I just miss her. And no one gets it. I know someone who does. He's tall and he calls me too much. Nice shot. He wants to do dinners now? What a d- I can't just all of a sudden pretend that everything's okay between us. You ever heard of fake it till you make it? Play the part of his daughter for give it an hour. An hour? I've decided therapy sucks. This isn't therapy. These are just chats that your dad should never know about. Why not? Because he'll make a big deal out of it. And he'll want to hug me or something. Like <laughs> yeah, he would. So what do you think? Mm. One dinner. Go get some sandwiches from that, that Nashville chicken place. And then afterwards, you can go by the bridge and judge some stupid teenagers. That's a scene from the Apple TV Plus show, Shrinking. That's such a good scene. (laughs) And I love that in a talk that's supposed to make someone feel better, Paul says, nobody gets through this life unscathed. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you've said that uh, you can't imagine dealing with a show about death and grief without comedy. And I totally agree. Can you talk more about that? It's it's weird how we, we got asked this a lot when we were making Shrinking, like, how is this a comedy? And I get when you lay out the plot, 
it's not you know it's, there's nothing funny in the in the plot of it and but people talk about the tone of it how do you get that tone right and it's it's just how i see life like it isn't everything is everything is funny or sad and it's both you know like it it's and it's how we cope and it's how I think it's how my brain works like um but I also know it's it's everyone's story I I uh nearly everyone can tell you if they've been with a loved one on their deathbed there'll be a moment within that week that they were there where they were crying, hyster- uh, laughing hysterically. They were cry- la- crying with laughter, you know. Something happened or a story they were telling or... There was a moment that happened to me where it's just such a small moment, but I remember thinking, this is it, this is, this is life. I was at a thing and it was a very emotional, kind of private, uh, moving, important thing. And it was, you know, lots of people crying and emotional and and in this very sort of quiet thing and someone was was speaking at the front and it was very very moving and everyone was kind of leaning in and it felt very special everyone being there for this thing and behind me I was at the back and behind me a woman was quite an old woman was setting up the tea for after the service and the tray she was using was on these wheels and one of the wheels was squeaky and the tray was shaking so much that this really moving thing was happening. And behind me was this woman making so much noise, but also trying not to make noise, which was kind of making it even louder. And it was so funny. Like, so it was literally I was in the middle of very powerful moving thing happen and just life behind me, just a woman trying to be quiet and finding it impossible to be quiet and stacking these cups and they're making so much noise. And it just went on for ages, her trying to stack these cups. And I thought, this is life. This is literally it. I'm literally in the middle of this powerful, beautiful, profound thing in front of me and behind me, this ridiculous mundane thing of a woman trying to stack some cups quietly. You know what I mean? I was like, this is it. This is all of it in one moment. I want to ask you, even though everyone else has asked you this, it's the report that this is the last season of Ted Lasso. The show's creators have always imagined the story to be a three-act arc. Um, I read you cried during the filming of these last episodes, knowing that it's the end. I sure I did, in fact. Um, (laughs) Did you, did it feel that way at the you know filming these last episodes yeah it's yeah i think it will to be fair it's emotional every season when we when we finished because i i think people must be sick of hearing it but like it's i really really love making ted lasso it's it's such a wonderful group of people and i do think that some of the magic of it is that we all we all care about it as much as you care about it, you know what I mean? Like, we, we really, really care about it, and we're so grateful to be there. And it and it's it's fun. It's not like it's, like, a grind, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's really good people working on something that we think is really good and we really care about. And so it's always sad when it comes to the end of shooting because you think, oh, I like hanging out with these people every day. <laughs> 
Brett Goldstein, congratulations on your success. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Brett Goldstein spoke with Fresh Airs and Marie Baldonado. The third and final season of Ted Lasso just started streaming on Apple TV+, where you can find the first season of Goldstein's series, Shrinking. After a short break, Justin Chang will review a new movie by the acclaimed filmmakers, the Darden Brothers. Justin says it's their best film in years. This is Fresh Air. Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network. These days, it can feel like the news is fighting for your attention wherever you turn, but staying informed shouldn't be a battle. Everything you need to navigate the stories that matter to you is at your fingertips. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download the NPR app in your app store today, or you can go to npr.org app. Our film critic Justin Chang recommends Tori and Lokita, the latest from the acclaimed filmmakers Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne. The movie, which won a prize at last year's Cannes Film Festival, tells the story of two African refugee children struggling to survive in present-day Belgium. It's now in theaters. Here's Justin's review. For nearly three decades, the Belgian brothers Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne have been making gripping moral thrillers, about characters caught up in desperate circumstances. My favorite is The Son, their 2002 drama about a father confronting his child's recently freed killer, though I also love their 2005 Cannes Film Festival winner, L'Enfant, in which a young man sells his own newborn child on the black market. They're such consistent filmmakers that despite their enormous acclaim and influence, in recent years, they've become somewhat underappreciated, At this point, to hear that they've made another brilliantly observed, emotionally shattering piece of social realism hardly counts as news. And yet they've done exactly that with Tori and Lokita, which strikes me as their best new movie in years. Shot with a restless handheld camera, and starring a pair of terrific first-time actors, it tells a lean, harrowing story about two African migrant children living in a bustling Belgian city. Tori, a 12-year-old boy played by Pablo Schills, is from Cameroon. Lokita, a 17-year-old girl played by Jolie Mbundu, is from Benin. Tori, an orphan, was granted political asylum upon his arrival. He and Lokita are trying to pass themselves off as brother and sister so that she can also claim refugee status. As is their way, the Dardens drop us immediately into the action, without bothering to fill in their characters' backgrounds. We do find out that Tori and Lokita met at some point during their travels, under circumstances that have now made them inseparable. While they have a place to stay at a local children's shelter, they spend their days and nights continually on the move, making money however they can. In one scene, they earn some cash singing karaoke at an Italian restaurant. 
Pero padre compro a la fiera del est, perdo eso el di, un topolino mi padre compro e vende il gatto che si mangia il topo. That's the sweetest moment in the movie, and by far the most pleasant of their jobs. The owner of the restaurant is a crime boss who uses Tori and Lokita as his drug couriers, and who sexually abuses Lokita in private. Lokita tries to send what little money she earns to her mother and siblings back home, but she's also being hounded by the people who smuggled her into Belgium and who try to extort cash from her and Tori. Things go from bad to worse when Lokita is sent to work at the boss's marijuana factory, a job that will separate her from Tori for at least three months. But Tori is smart and resourceful, as just about every child in a Dardenne movie has to be to survive. As Tori races to try and rescue Lokita, the film paints a grimly convincing portrait of two minors being mistreated and exploited at every turn, whether by drug dealers or by the cops we see harassing them on the street. The Dardennes are committed realists, but they're also terrific action filmmakers, and this movie is full of agonizing suspense and quick, brutal violence. The story is swift and relentless. It runs barely 90 minutes and never slows down. But at every moment, the filmmakers' compassion for their characters bleeds through, along with their rage at the injustices that we're seeing. Unlike some of the Dardennes' other protagonists, Tori and Lokita don't face a moral dilemma or a crisis of conscience. Their only imperative is to stay together and stay alive, and our empathy for them is total. There is one moment in the movie that haunts me. It happens in a flash, when Tori and Lokita are running for their lives, and Lokita desperately flags down a passing car. The driver stops for a moment, but then she quickly drives on, leaving the children on their own. I think the Dardens mean for us to think about that driver, and also about how easy it is to turn away from the suffering of others. It's not the first time they've made a movie with this kind of staying power. Or, I suspect, the last. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed Tori and Lokita. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, our guest will be public health professor Arlene Geronimus, who offers this explanation for the poorer health of black, brown, and poor people. She says it's not genetics, diet, or exercise, but the stress of living with poverty and discrimination, which damages bodies at the cellular level and erodes health over time. Her new book is called Weathering. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts.
The news can feel incredibly overwhelming. For a breath of much-needed fresh air, head to NPR.org's culture section. From the buzzy movies, tiny desks, and artists that everyone seems to know about, type in NPR.org for the latest and greatest in the pop culture universe. Want all of NPR without relying on your radio? Visit NPR.org to be connected to your local station wherever you are and wherever the news takes you. Get your vital mix of rigorously reported local and national stories all live, free, and at your fingertips at NPR.org. NPR.org.